Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals to state senators to mayors to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this episode, I speak with Mike Schmoll. Mike has had a fascinating career, starting off in journalism, then returning home to Indiana to work in politics and help his childhood friend, Pete Buttigieg, run for mayor. He served as Mayor Pete's first chief of staff, and then later was the very first hire on the Pete for President team. He's now serving as Indiana Democratic State Party Chair. Mike and I talk about all things politics, including Indiana's two-decade slide to the right and what Democrats are going to need to do to be successful there and across the Midwest. He also talks about what it was like to build and run a presidential primary campaign and why Pete's message of belonging resonated with so many people then and still does today. I hope you enjoy this one. Mike Schmuel, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Great to be with you. I'm really excited you're here today. Thanks for doing this with us. There's so much fun stuff to talk about. So some serious stuff, some fun stuff. And so I'm just going to dive right in. As I was telling everyone in the intro, you have a really varied career, done lots of really interesting things. So I kind of wanted with you just to start at the beginning, like when you finished college, when you went into college, like, did you know the path that your career was going to take? Did you want to do politics? What happened to you? <laughs> How'd you get here? That's a good question. <laughs> Maybe something my parents ask me once in a while, too. <laughs> so I, I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, only child. And my dad taught at Notre Dame for about 40 years. And I knew that when I was in college, I was really interested in a few things, namely journalism and also politics. And so I had the great fortune in 2004, another time when the Democratic Party had a very heated primary with Howard Dean and John Kerry and John Edwards and all those folks. I had the great fortune of interning with Tim Russert of Meet the Press, who was really one of the best journalists in America at the time and really ever. And so that gave me a front row seat to that line of work. And after college, I went into that field. And so I worked at the Washington Post as a producer and a booker in the newsroom, the old newsroom, for about three years. And it was a wonderful experience. And so that was really my first foray into a career and into working. But a little part of me turned into a big part of me was kind of pulling me back to my hometown to get involved in politics, to get involved in public service. And so ultimately, in around 2009, I think the summer of that year, I moved back home. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Tim Russert, what a legend, what an amazing experience to get to do that. And I did know that about you. And a fun fact, though, if I remember right, from the Washington Post days, one of your jobs at the Post was to get them into podcasting, correct? Since we're on a podcast. Yes. Is that true? Yes. We're going back in time here. And so 2006 to 2009, I would have been about 23, 24, 25 years old. So young guy. 
And I had to be at the newsroom very early, like, you know, almost 3.30, 4 in the morning to help with kind of planning the new segments for the day. Because even still now, you see cable news and different TV shows, they're piping into different newsrooms across the country, New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera. And so we had this makeshift studio in the middle of the newsroom that I helped to manage. But yeah, I'll never forget. I think maybe my second year there, some people came up to me and they were like, you're really young. And I said, okay. (laughs) They said, do you know what podcasts are? I said, I do. How would you like to create those? (laughs) I love that so much. Okay. But it was really amazing. Like I helped them launch the Book World podcast where we interviewed really famous, really, really famous authors from around the world. The Foreign Affairs podcast with Cameron Barr uh, was the host of that, who I think is now the managing editor of the Washington Post and a few other ones. And so it was really cool. So I would edit it, help book the guests and then publish it online. And this is pretty well before podcasts are what they are now, which is you know, a huge, huge, huge medium for people all around the world. Yeah, I love that. I am just kind of giggling about that story you just told about, you know, <laughs> that you're young. I kind of feel like that's me now with my staff. I'm like, you're young. What's Instagram? <laughs> yeah. What's oh, TikTok? How quick did this on for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. again? Oh my God. I feel like I'm yeah. so. I think that's hysterical. But I feel like I'm going to already want to invite you back to have a whole conversation about media and disinformation. You know, that I was going to go down that road. But there's too Mm -hmm. much I want to talk about about your career and our mutual friend, Pete Buttigieg. So I'm going to table those questions, but I would love to get your thoughts on that at some point. So you came back to Indiana to South Bend and you ran the first campaign of a certain mayor that we both know. How did that come about? Yeah, it's a great story. So I moved home and I did not move home to work for Pete. I moved home to work for our congressman at the time, a guy named Joe Donnelly, who went on to serve a term in the United States Senate and is now the ambassador to the Holy See, the ambassador to the Vatican for President Biden. So I moved home to work for Joe Donnelly. And I think that this relates to maybe some other stuff that we'll talk about here in a little bit, Debbie. But It was 2009, so it was the year after Obama, his big victory. He won Indiana. Amazing. won Indiana. The congressional delegation in Indiana was very balanced. We had five members of the House, two Republicans, four. And Evan Bayh was in the Senate alongside Dick Lugar. So, Mm -hmm. you know, really preeminent names that I grew up with. But I loved Joe Donnelly's style. I loved his work ethic. He was a blue dog Democrat. He was, you know, pro-union and middle of the road, just a great, great, great person to kind of learn retail politics from and how to build coalitions. So I moved home and I was in his official office. And then a few months later, gosh, this keeps happening to me. Somebody will come up to me and say, hey, you're young, you do this. But Joe Donnelly gave me my first campaign job and that was to be his campaign manager, which I was pretty surprised, pretty floored that you know, a member of Congress would ask me to do that, but I agreed to it. So February of 2010, I became his campaign manager for re-election. And almost like that, things changed in our country. 2008, Barack Obama winning Indiana quickly turned into the Tea Party, healthcare town halls, the backlash of all of that. And I think at the end of the day, 62 or 63 House Democrats lost Mm -hmm. that November. Yeah, Joe Donnelly survived re-election. And so that was the first campaign that I ever managed. But at the same time, that exact same year, my friend from high school, a guy that I met in eighth grade, Pete Buttigieg, had moved home 
but he had moved home to position himself to run for office himself. So he was running for state treasurer and I was managing one of the congressional campaigns in our state. And so that's when we kind of reconnected and would see each other at rubber chicken dinners all over North Central Indiana. And in the aftermath of 2010, a lot of people were impressed by Pete and really urged him to take a look at running for mayor of South Bend. It was looking like the long-serving mayor, Steve Lickey, was not going to run again. And so a lot of people were saying, hey, you know, young guy, very impressive, very smart. Why don't you take a look at this? And not too long after the death settled from November of 2010, Pete decided to run for mayor. Amazing. Amazing. And what was that like? So, you know, two hometown boys coming back to the city they loved to run for office. I mean, obviously he won. We know that part. So part of the story, what was it like to govern with a city that you guys grew up in? What an amazing experience. I think early on, you know, clean cut. I didn't have my beard. I think people thought we were maybe Mormon missionaries walking around downtown (laughs) South Bend, you know, wearing ties and we're going to talk to everybody. Right. But I, I think some of the things that I remember that were really, really, really important back then and still even now was South Bend was put on a list of top dying cities, like top 10 dying cities in America. And the reasoning for South Bend being on that list was young people were leaving the community. Its Mm -hmm. population was dwindling. It was this big automotive manufacturing center that was gone. Yes, we have Notre Dame and some great colleges and universities, but you know, there just wasn't a lot happening. That was sort of the feeling. It was kind of stagnant. You also have to remember this was the global recession. So 2008, 9, 10, really difficult times for the economy, particularly places like South Bend. But I think what Pete saw and then what we saw and how we tailored our campaign and designed our campaign was, okay, South Bend's a dying city. It says that, you know, these naysayers say that young people aren't going to stick around here. Well, guess what? Here's a young guy who wants to run for mayor. And he wants to lead this community. And so I think that really gave us, in a way, that weakness gave the campaign a strength and an energy that allowed him to run as a fresh face and a new guy and new ideas and being creative to turn the city around. And so that's what we did. It was a really crowded primary, I will say. We ran against two folks who were elected officials in the Democratic primary who were very well known. Buttigieg is not exactly, (laughs) doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, (laughs) although now it might a little bit more around the country. And so we just built a big coalition and a big campaign. It was a positive campaign. And so I think that when people had all these different choices to choose from, Pete won the primary in really commanding fashion and then went on to serve two terms as mayor. Yeah. And you were his first chief of staff, I should note. So you went into the government to work with him alongside him. And I think that's where we met when he became a New Deal leader early on as mayor. And we loved working with Mayor Pete, as you well know, because you guys were, you know, doing really innovative stuff to your point. I mean, from smart cities to, you know, economic transformation. And it it was a great, great story to hear. And it's a great story to help try to tell to other mayors around the country. So congrats on all that work that you all did. And I think that it was really inspiring and continues to be inspiring. Of course, he went on to do even bigger things in national politics, as did you. So you did some other political consulting, which I'm going to kind of just acknowledge and kind of skip over. But I want to, of course, talk about the fact that you then came back with Pete and were employee number one of the presidential primary campaign, which is so exciting and interesting. And of course, as New Dealers, we were all thrilled. 
And I mean, I just, you know, how interesting to get to what it's such a unique thing to get to do to build up a primary campaign, you you know, again, employee number one, up to 600 people, eventually, I think $100 million, right? Pretty big enterprise. He just kind of what was that experience like, you know, you kind of just make that decision where I'm going to run for president, come help me do it. <laughs> You're sitting at a, <laughs> having a cup of coffee. And what was that experience like? Yeah, pretty surreal. You know, I think it's something that I do think about even now, probably every day, sometimes a little bit longer and sometimes just briefly, but really a surreal experience and perhaps once in a lifetime experience. But I moved home at the end of 2018. So right after that midterm election to help Pete with this project, with whatever was on the horizon. I've been joking with some people over the last few days, Debbie, that some folks have seen some of the Republicans who are wading into different you know, the presidential contest, obviously. And some folks online are like, there's no such thing as an exploratory committee. You know, these people are running. I would beg to differ. <laughs> we 100% launched an exploratory committee because we had no clue what the response would be to Pete's candidacy. You know, we thought that there was an opening there for generational change, generational leadership, somebody to talk about the Midwest, flyover country, quote unquote, so important for the Democratic and Republican primaries. You see both conventions are going to be in the Midwest next year. And so we moved back and it was really, really, really bare bones operation. You know, we had some Notre Dame interns and just a couple people to help out at the very beginning. But what we did is we kind of set things in a month to month basis just to see how it would go. So in January, it was U.S. Conference of Mayors in Washington. Pete had a small press conference. We put out a short video saying we had an exploratory committee created. February, Pete released a book that allowed him to travel around the country, shortest way home, to talk about growing up and his time as mayor. And yeah, there you go. We're not yeah. on. We're not on a video, but I'm showing my copy of the book behind yep. me. <laughs> yep. And his, you know, public service, his military service coming out, all of those things are touched on in Shortest Way Home. But that allowed us to go around the country and have, have book events. And then in March was really the turning point. CNN and, and other networks started to provide more opportunities for people who were considering running for president. And CNN gave us one hour on primetime TV from South by Southwest in Texas and Pete used that hour really masterfully. And I think that people saw his his smarts, his rhetorical gifts. And that's really when the campaign became real. You know, we went from a pretty small staff and a little traveling band to having lots of money, having lots of people donate across the country and having it take off. And as we were talking right before we started recording, it ultimately culminated in the April move which was four years ago today, April 14th, is when we launched the campaign formally here in South Bend. And then we kind of just took off from there. Yeah. Hey there. I want to take a moment to recommend a podcast for those of you who are looking for more hopeful and positive voices around urban change. Our friend Andrea Learned's podcast, Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership, Andrea interviews local leaders who are living the change they want to see reflected in their communities. And she goes beyond city leaders to find corporate and media professionals who are also leading the way, from CFOs to Emmy Award winners. These conversations highlight how people's personal values integrate into their work. There are some really good stories here, so I hope you give it a listen. Check out 
Living Change, a quest for climate leadership, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, back to our show. Yeah, well, first of all, amazing. I'd like to pretend that we planned that out to have you four years to the day. But I love that that is coincidental and that happened. I mean, and it's just, first of all, it's such an inspiring story, right? The, The way you just told it too. Like, I think people think that the whole you know, everything is preordained, politics kind of gets made in back rooms. I mean, really, the story that you're talking about is a guy who, you know, a lot of people didn't know who'd really just set the world on fire to some extent in terms of of his ability to articulate, as you were saying, kind of this generational change that we're, you know, present a vision for the future for America that really people resonated with people. I mean, he's still so good at it. I mean, obviously, he's one of the best spokespeople in the Democratic Party, hands down, if not the best. But it's a great reminder that like, you don't know, like, you know, if you had asked somebody this time, right, or a day ago before you announced or whatever, you know, who was going to be up in the upper echelons of the Democratic primary, people would have said, I remember saying, keep an eye on this guy. And people are like, who, you know, <laughs> and so I think it's so, so inspiring. And then, of course, to state the big thing, obviously, the first LGBTQ candidate to win any delegates in American history, which is, you know, in Iowa. And which So, you know, what do you attribute, talked a little bit about it, but is there anything else you'd want to say about kind of why do you think he resonated so much with Americans? Why did it go so well? Yeah, I think a few things. At first, I want to chat about the primary contests itself, because that was something that we saw when the campaign started to take off and become real, was you look at the Democratic Party over the last generation plus, and you have Jimmy Carter, you have Bill Clinton, and you have Barack Obama. And you have these sort of candidates that kind of came from nowhere or came from sort of smaller posts that very quickly captivated the Democratic primary electorate, captivated America, and were successful, right? And so we sort of saw it that way. And your point, Debbie, earlier is is a good one that in America, you still can, if (laughs) if you have the right message and you know how to play the game and you can build a team and you can build trust, that you can do well that you can do well. You can start to to build your campaign, get support, get delegates and compete in these contests. And just now, you know, being in my role now, I'm on the DNC. And so we've tweaked the calendar for the first time also in a generation. And so now I think we're really going to have an interesting opportunity and not just in 2024, but really beyond to kind of see how that develops young candidacies, up and comers, new people to the party, which I think is really healthy. So I'll just say that first. But your other point, you know, why did he resonate? I think looking back in time, kind of 2018 was Donald Trump's first midterm. You kind of look at that moment in time. Obviously, Donald Trump's still in the news, very much so. (laughs) But Pete Buttigieg is really the antithesis of Donald Trump in almost every way. And so, you know, somebody who is just sort of says anything versus somebody who is very factual, very logical very focused on truth. You have somebody who dodged military service, Pete Buttigieg, somebody who served in the Navy, served overseas in Afghanistan in a tour of duty, somebody who was doing a celebrity apprentice and building his business empire. And Pete Buttigieg, you know, a Rhodes Scholar who moved home to serve as mayor of his hometown that was really struggling. Somebody from New York, coastal, you know, big city, somebody who's in flyover country who, you know, is doing his own grocery shopping and doing service delivery for people in the community as mayor. So the contrasts were just there. 
and the list could really go on and on. And so we saw that as a big opening. You mentioned, you know, LGBTQ and making history. I mean, that's really big. But I would also say something that we were slightly concerned about was that the primary was going to be so big and that every Democratic candidate would kind of be labeled as you're this person, you're that person. That really didn't quite happen, which I think was really good that Pete was able to run on who he was, his ideas, his values. And that was really powerful. So, and I think the other thing that that we noticed during the debates, and again, go back in time here, we had like multiple debate nights. <laughs> there was lotteries, there was, you know, placements, there's polling, there's donors, there's all these different rules that were designed by the DNC and, and the debate moderators. But Pete also just exemplified energy and youth going up against Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and other folks like that, Pete was just a lot younger. And so he was able to talk about generational issues and generational change in a way that that other candidates maybe couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. I want to underscore your point because it is historic and it's worth mentioning. And it's, you know, that it's, it's, it's an exciting milestone in American history. But I mean, Pete just resonated with people of all stripes, all ideologies. I mean, I think he's also so good at kind of, you know, which we'll talk about a little bit as we get to your next phase that you're doing now, I kind of want to pivot, but he's so good at kind of, you know, reaching across any kind of aisles, you know, not just partisan aisles, but just, you know, any kind of divides. I think Pete's such a healer, right? He's such a person who gives an opening to find common ground, which is really what Democrats have to do if you're going to be successful, particularly in places like the Midwest, I think. So, you know, I think that that's something that he's such a good person to take lessons from on that. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think like, you know, Donald Trump is like the master of the politics of grievance. And I think that one of the things that Pete talked a lot about on the campaign trail was was belonging and feel like you're a part of something. Mm-hmm. You know, being an American citizen, what are the values that we share? And being, I think, really articulate in talking about that. And yeah. so in Iowa, for example, you know, we made a point of going to a lot of those counties that were quote unquote Obama Trump counties. You know, I think Iowa has the most in the United States, you know, ironically, and they're also the first state in 2020 that caucus that voted. And so what's the anecdote, you know, to grievance and pushing everybody away is trying to bring people together to find common ground to say we're better than this. You know, we can find solutions to some of our biggest problems. And so belonging, I think, was also a really, really big message for the campaign. Yeah. And so inspiring. So inspiring. I think America's yearning for that, frankly. I'm just so tired of the politics of division and grievance and so tired mm-hmm. of being told all the time what, you know, divides us and <laughs> instead of what unites us. Yeah. This is what I stay up at night worrying about. I just think yeah. this, and I don't think it has to be that this way. That's what's so frustrating to me about it, right? No. And I think that message was potent, not just on our campaign, but you know, Joe Biden won that primary and Joe Biden is president of the United States. His message was also very similar. Joe Biden said he ran for president to restore the soul of our nation and to unite the country. Those are very powerful sentiments as well, particularly in a time that's so divisive and it seems like an issue presents itself and everybody just races to their corners (laughs) with very little dialogue. You know, Joe Biden has, has tried to bring people together as well. I think that's absolutely right. And it's a really good point. And it's so exciting to see and fun to see Pete doing so well as Secretary of Transportation. But I totally agree with you. And now, and you know, and we do have a president in, in Joe Biden who not only campaigned on that, but has governed that way, at least in the first two years when he had a little room in what was a very, very close Congress, did it has done an amazing amount of work to deliver for the American people, whether it's the, you know, getting us through COVID, shots in arms, but also the American Rescue Plan funding, which we talk a lot about at New Deal because of the this historic, you know, and the bipartisan infrastructure 
infrastructure deal and chips and you know the inflation reduction act so it's been exciting to see and gratifying to see you know someone in the white house that is not just said those words but then delivered for the american people all people all states right to be a president for all people and so but to your point and this is a great kind of way to pivot here. We do still have Donald Trump in the mix and announced candidate for next time around. You have now become, you've done some other things. You've done been in the private sector and and done a lot of things beyond politics, but you are also wear the hat right now, which God bless you, of being the Indiana Democratic Party chair. You came back and ran for party chair of yours of Indiana. You've been serving there since 2021. So you're in the thick of presidential politics in a different way now and having to think about, you know, how Demo- what Democrats are going to have to do in Indiana to be successful. So kind of just like what's the lay of what's give us the lay of the land in Indiana and kind of what you're trying to accomplish there and anything you want to say about the Republic, you know, about kind of where we find ourselves vis-a-vis the modern day Republican Party, which is a little bit scary. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I became chair uh, a couple of years ago and not exactly a job that well, when Pete was running for DNC chair, he would always say, you know, I wasn't exactly bouncing on my mother's knee wanting to be DNC chair. I could probably <laughs> say the same thing about being IDP chair. But it is definitely a labor of love. And like, I do love our party. I love the Democratic Party in Indiana. And I think earlier when I was talking about, you know, how balanced Indiana was back then, another thing I I, I didn't mention is we had a Democratic speaker of our state house back then when I first got involved in politics. Now it's a supermajority environment in both houses, back to back gerrymanderings in 20, well, I guess it would be 2011 and then 2021, my first year as chair. And so we're operating in, in this environment. And that's probably the biggest reason that I ran is that I grew up in an Indiana that was a lot more balanced and a lot more common sense than the one that we currently have. We, for the last decade plus, we've been on this just rightward trajectory that I think is out of step with uh, the majority of Hoosiers. And so, you know, it's gerrymandering, it's money, it's Republican primaries being more powerful than than a lot of other elections in our state, frankly. It's all these issues that we're up against. And so I just couldn't stand by and, and let it let it continue without without doing something, without helping the party out. And so what we've done I'm really proud of, you know, we've increased our budget. We've hired a lot more staff. We're instituting year-round organizing, which is probably the best thing that a state party can do anywhere in the United States. So taking um, some pages out of the playbook of Wisconsin, which is really one of the crown jewels, as is Michigan, just to the north of us here in Indiana. So instituting year-round organizing, improving our message, recruiting more candidates, and holding the Republicans accountable. And As I look to next year, which is 2024, 2024 will mark 20 years of Republican governors. So 2004, Mitch Daniels beat the last Democratic governor of our state, Joe Kernan. And so that's what I've been really pressing Hoosiers on as I travel around the state is let's talk about the last 20 years. Let's have an honest discussion, an honest debate about the last two decades, how you're doing, how your job's doing, how your family's doing, how your kids are doing. Because, you know, we would argue that Indiana can be doing a lot better and we should be doing a lot better, frankly. Other states are cruising right past us and we have a great state, but we need to improve ourselves. We need to be better now and in the future. Yeah. I mean, first of all, hearkening back to our earlier conversation about being old, I, I mean, I, you know, Evan By was chair of the DLC when I worked at the DLC. So, I mean, I, I still think <laughs> Indiana is a swing state. I sometimes I have to remind myself that yeah. things have changed, you know, so I 
I completely relate to that sentence, but I think that's amazing. And, and we've talked a, a little bit in other conversations about kind of the importance of, you know, new rural rural voters in Indiana and just how you need to be everywhere, right? I think you've got your 92 county strategy in Indiana to make sure that Democrats are, are you know, are talking to people and engaging people. And I think it's really important that we draw distinctions about what's Republicans are not doing well in states where Republicans have such total control. I think also I know that you believe that we have to have a really positive aspirational message, just like you've done the presidential campaign about what Democrats would offer differently. And, and particularly, you've, you've talked a lot about having a bold economic agenda. Do you want to kind of say anything more about, about what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that that's one thing that I think about and work on quite a bit is the rural strategy. Indiana has 92 counties, as you said, a lot of those are rural. Donald Trump I would really say over the last couple presidential cycles has dominated in rural America. People who feel like they're disconnected, they're left behind, loss of opportunity, loss of mobility. And I think that what we decided very early on in my chairmanship was that we had to go everywhere and we had to talk to everybody. And we did not care who you voted for, where you live, where you work, any of that stuff. And so we did about 160 events in 70 counties in about a year and a half. And each sort of chunk of, of dates was, was basically thematic, was basically a tour where we talked about some of those pieces of legislation that, that you mentioned, Debbie, but also the overturn of, of Roe versus Wade. We're the first state in the country to have a special session to put in, in place further abortion restrictions since Roe was overturned. And so we had a, a tour around that. But yeah, infrastructure agriculture, the American Rescue Plan, talking about how that would help communities, Safer Communities Act, a lot of these things. And we just went everywhere and basically spread the gospel. And some places were really receptive and some places it was tough. You know, you show up and you say you're a Democrat and they expect that there's horns in the back of your head or something because they're probably watching Fox News, probably listening to conservative radio in their community, probably reading things on their phone and and social media, you know, about politics that's probably not very healthy. But showing up, I think, was really, really important. And so, you know, I'm also looking at other ways that we can enhance our our brand and our message digitally. So it's not just us showing up, doing an event, having a roundtable, talking with the local outlets and TV stations. But, you know, what can we do that pushes back against some of the Republican branding to show folks that the Democratic Party shares a lot of their values. The Democratic Party is delivering for people. Democratic Party can make your life better. I think that that is something that we cannot lose track of because if we let it drift too far, it's going to be really, really hard to bring it back. And it's not just in Indiana. I think some of the coverage you've seen in Tennessee most recently with the two members being expelled hits on these issues. What happened, you know, Kentucky, again, Governor Bashir is a great leader who is really, really popular in that state. He's also working with a Republican supermajority. And so these are things that are really top of mind that we have to fight back on. And we have to have some change in some of these rural and exurban areas. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it'd be remiss, we were talking earlier before the we started taping about the fact that the NRA convention is this week right now, Indianapolis, Indiana. And you were mentioning Tennessee and what happened there is really a result of these young Black 
elected officials, legislators protesting gun safety, gun control in, in the light of the Nashville shooting. And then you just had the horrific shooting in, across your river in, in Louisville. What's going on there? And, and what, you know, what are Democrats saying? Or, or I guess what are, maybe a better question is what, like, do you feel like there's room to reach? I feel like there is a lot of common sense gun safety majorities, even in red states, if we can just talk about this in the right way. And I just, I guess I wonder, do you think that's true? What are you seeing on the ground in Indiana? Is this a place where people are like, this is just enough is enough. We can both respect the second amendment and also have yeah. since gun safety to keep our kids safe. How are you thinking about it as party chair? I think that's right. I've seen some of the coverage in Tennessee and Louisville, you know, Governor Lee and Governor Bashir have both come out with ideas in the wake of these shootings. So in Tennessee, you know, Governor Lee, obviously a Republican, making a move to change some things based on the national, you know, backlash and obviously the horrific shooting that occurred. Governor Bashir, a Democrat, also doing the same thing. So I think you are starting to see that there is some wiggle room. And that's the way that we've been messaging it is that we can honor the Second Amendment, we can respect the Second Amendment, but we can also honor and respect responsible gun reforms that the vast majority of Americans, and I think another important point to emphasize, the vast majority of gun owners and the vast majority of NRA members support some of these reforms. And so, you know, more horrific shootings, more senseless acts of violence, we can't just let them go by. We can't just become numb to it. And so that's what we've been saying. You know, I think the other thing that's important that I can talk about in my role is the political angle of the NRA and their power. So the NRA annual meetings in Indianapolis starts today. It's this weekend. It's the whole political circus of everybody who's going to speak to them and say that they're with them and, and all of that. So, you know, as a Hoosier, we welcome anybody to our state. We're, we're a state with lots of Hoosier hospitality. Indianapolis is an amazing place to have a convention. But at the same time, I think you can have disagreements and you can talk about policy. The day after Louisville, the Indiana Republican Senate passed a resolution honoring the NRA and its leaders, you know, in our state Senate with Wayne LaPierre there. You know, I just think that's tone deaf. I think it's out of touch. The NRA has given Republican candidates for office $130 million since Sandy Hook. You know, th that's just off to me. We mentioned my first campaign, Debbie. This is an amazing little nugget of information. In 2010, me running Joe Donnelly's campaign for Congress, we were endorsed by the NRA, Democrat. Yeah. A plus rating, incumbent member of Congress. I do not think the NRA <laughs> you know, does anything on our side of the aisle anymore just because of their staunch opposition to a lot of these things. So, so that's where I'm at. But the other thing that gives me a little bit of hope, I mean, this is really tough stuff to talk about, is I heard from Senator Chris Murphy yesterday, who's obviously the leading person probably on Capitol Hill as it relates to this issue. And he said that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is working in many ways, that if you're 21 or younger, there's an elongated period to buy a firearm in the United States. If you are somebody who's a domestic abuser, law enforcement officials can come in and take your guns away if you're a harm to potential harm to somebody in your household or somebody that you have a relationship with. That's saving lives. And if you do have red flag laws in your state, the federal government is now funding those. And so those are just three things that he listed off that I think we see legislation that passes and then we quickly move on to another thing that we're trying to achieve. But I also think it's really, really important to talk about once that legislation is passed, 
what is it doing in communities across America? And it's doing that. And so I'm hopeful that in the future, there'll be more examples of that in our country. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you about the point about just having to make sure people know what's working and what's happening with things that, particularly the Democrats have delivered, frankly, which is a lot over the last couple of years. So we will keep with right there with you uh, making those that case out there. And thank you for all you're doing. I, this, I, I really could go a whole nother hour. I've got more questions, but... <laughs> I'm so glad you came on and thanks so much for being with me. It was really just great to hear about kind of your path and your journey and all the great work you're doing in Indiana. We look forward to working with you in that capacity. Sounds good. I'll see you soon. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.